So we are in the book of Daniel, and last week, having finished chapter 8, we inexorably move on to chapter 9. This is the chapter that everybody reads Daniel for. As we get started, I've been rumbling around reading various people's opinions of the 70 weeks, and we'll get there in just a minute. I've got some slides with a couple of different presentations of what it could mean. In the Sunday church, especially among those who believe in the rapture, this is a big deal. They spend a whole lot of time studying Daniel chapter 9 and adding up days and trying to figure out when this starts and when that starts. And a lot of that, I think, is driven by a belief in the pre-trib rapture. I will tell you quite frankly, I am not a rapture guy. If any of you is, God bless you. We can still have lunch. It's okay. You don't need to be defensive about it. So anyway, a lot of the writings of various people that I have found on Daniel chapter 9 all center around the idea of the rapture, trying to figure out what's going on in the 70th week and figuring out when the rapture is and all that kind of thing. My perspective puts less emphasis on that. My perspective is, and many of you have heard this before, so I will say it quickly, Revelation is extremely understandable very easy book to grasp and it's in three sections with interludes seven seals seven trumpets and then seven bowls of wrath and the seals are the authentication of the king so as the seals get opened up Yeshua is the guy that matches the criteria for all seven seals so he's the king the seven trumpets then announce the coming of the king And as I understand it, he touches down at the end of the seventh trumpet. And then you have seven bowls of wrath where the king takes vengeance on his enemies. In between, you've got historical background and that kind of thing. I regard Revelation in its essence as being a replay of the Exodus. Because one of the things you'll notice, and we do this when we go through the plagues in Exodus, that all of the plagues in the Exodus show up in Revelation, not in the same order. And the reason I don't believe in a rapture, as much of the Sunday church believes in the rapture, is because God has given us a model in the Exodus of him being able to take his people out of Egypt, the world, and during the plagues, his people are not removed. They stay in Egypt. They get shoveled up to Goshen, so they get out of the way of some of this stuff. But it is not the case that they get scooped up into the heavenlies or anything like that while he deals with the stuff that's going on in the world, which the plagues are designed to do. I believe God does things in patterns. So the pattern that's established by the Exodus, given that all of the plagues of the Exodus are repeated in Revelation, says to me that we're going to be here while God sorts out the world. He's done it before, perfectly capable of keeping his own people safe and out of the way. So I think that's what's going to happen. As I jokingly say, if you believe in the rapture and you turn out to be right, you can explain it to me on the way up. And if you turn out to be wrong, come on out to my tent in the wilderness and I'll explain it to you. It is not anything to break fellowship over. I know people who have broken fellowship over the idea of the rapture. Both points of view are perfectly welcome here. We can argue about it. I'm happy to do all of that. 
But as I am going through Daniel 9, my perspective is not going to be from a pre-trib rapture perspective, it's going to be from a repeat of Exodus perspective. And that's going to change my view of some stuff in Daniel 9. Everybody understand where I'm coming from. And most of the Sunday church, one of the things they hang their hats on is Yeshua says that you're not designed for wrath. So God wouldn't leave his church here during the time of wrath. And that's sort of the thing they hang their hat on. I don't have any problem with God just sort of saying, all right, all you who belong to me, get under one of the 144,000, get out in the wilderness out of the way while I take care of the rest of the world. It doesn't bother me at all. It isn't an important thing to me because as I read scripture, God is going to take care of us. As I read the Exodus, Moses arranged for everybody to be where they needed to be to avoid the plagues, and then he arranged for everybody to be where they need to be as they left Egypt. God is going to tell me where I should be, and I will go there. And if in that process I skip over a mountain, cool, I'm I'm okay with that. But it's not something I worry about, because my perspective is, the last set of instructions that we got from Yeshua is, if I come back and I see that you, my servants, are not doing the things that I left for you to do, I'm going to be honked. My focus is figuring out what it is God wants me to do while Yeshua is gone and be found doing it when he returns. And if I am doing that, then I'm not really worried about all this other stuff. What I believe is the last plague of the Exodus is the death of the firstborn. The first plague of the second Exodus is the death of the firstborn, which is the crucifixion, because Yeshua is God's firstborn. And so he dies and is raised from the dead, and then all the rest of this stuff lights off. It is my perspective, and again, I'm not throwing this out as dogma, it's just what I think that we are somewhere between the fifth and the sixth seal. I believe that war, pestilence, and all that kind of stuff got released as he died. And the sixth seal is the one that's in the throne room of heaven where you got the saints under the altar and they're saying, how long, O Lord, and all that kind of thing. That's not visible to us. So I think we are somewhere between the fifth and the sixth Maybe the sixth has happened and we're between the fifth and the seventh. But once you get to number seven, they cease to be subtle. Big, dramatic things are going to start happening. And I don't think that's going to be subtle. I don't think anybody's going to have any trouble recognizing it, at least not people who are following Scripture. And the previous model is God sent Moses, and I believe that the 144,000 are going to do what Moses did for Egypt. You got a thousand pairs for each of the 72 nations and they're going to go out and they're going to find all God's people and they're going to sort them up, put them in a bag and get them out of the way while the rest of this stuff goes down. That's what I think. But like I said, my last set of instructions from the Messiah was when I come back, I expect to see you doing what I told you to do. And so that's where my concentration is as opposed to being focused on, oh, when's the rapture? Who's the Antichrist? What are we, we going to, you know, and, and you have segments of the body of Christ that are in a low hover over that stuff constantly. 
And I think that's a mistake. But I'm just saying, as we go through Daniel 9, just understand where I'm coming from. I will present a couple of different day-counting scenarios. Robert Anderson, he's a big deal. He's the one that sort of came up with a key that got a lot of this stuff started. And then there's another guy, David Regan, who has a conflicting viewpoint. And I could probably find half a dozen more if I worked hard. I happen to have slides for those two, so I'm going to show you those. So Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And, of course, you all know the prophecies in Jeremiah. God says, okay, folks, I told you that I want the land to rest every seven years. You haven't been doing it. You owe the land 70 years worth of Sabbaths. So I'm going to take you off the land so that the land can have its Sabbaths, and when that's all finished, I'll put you back. And Daniel has read that prophecy, and he realizes that the 70 years is about up. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confessions. All right, now, this is a fairly long section. I'm just going to read it. But as we do, a couple of things to notice. This is also important. Daniel has a prophecy. It says it's going to be 70 years. Daniel does not just sit back on his blessed assurance and wait to see what happens as the clock ticks past 70. Daniel is active because Daniel realizes that the voice of a man is going to be necessary for the will of God to happen. What do I mean by that? God gave us dominion. He did it back in Genesis. He has never taken it back. He's killed a bunch of us when we screwed it up, but he's never taken dominion back. And it's God's policy that he does things on earth through the agency of a human. A human speaks out a prophecy. A human speaks out a prayer. A human speaks out a blessing. A human speaks out a curse. And assuming that's in line with what God has in mind, that becomes the switch that releases God's power into that situation. Now, it's really important to recognize that the power belongs to God, but the switch belongs to us. Don't get confused and think that you're the source of the power. You're not. What you are is a switch. And so what Daniel is saying is, ah, we're coming up on the end of the 70 years. I need to step in there and become the switch that is going to activate the return from Babylon. So verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord God, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, 
in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all of the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as in this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your holy people have become a byword among all who are around us. So the first 15 verses, he is laying out the reasons why they are in the pickle they're in. He's laying out the fact that God told them what was going to happen if they behaved in a certain way. It was not the case that they acted in ignorance. They had the prophecies, they knew what was going to happen, and God, being true to his word, did exactly what the prophets said he would do. Hence, we have got no complaint. We did this to ourselves. And again, it's God's power, but we're the ones who released these curses upon ourselves by acting against the word of God as given to us by the prophets. So the first part of this is, we did it, we're guilty, we got no complaints whatsoever. And then he says, I am now asking you for mercy. Let me read 16 again now. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. So he says, let your anger and wrath turn away. So this is a plea for mercy. So the first three quarters of the prayer, he says, we deserve it. Your judgment's righteous. We got no complaints. Now, having said that we are guilty, we are now asking for mercy. Verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Notice, for whose sake? For God's sake. Why is this for God's sake? There are prophecies of a return. There are prophecies of forgiveness. There are prophecies that say, you're going to get scattered all over the earth, but in your exile, you're going to turn back to me. And when you do turn back to me, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive you. So what Daniel is doing is he is turning back to God 
from exile in accordance with the promise that God made through Moses. This is all very logical and I would say mechanical, but that's probably not quite the right word, but it's formulaic. He's going through the scripture and saying, all right, this is what it says. If we turn away from our sins in our exile and we seek your face, you will hear from heaven and forgive us. That's what I'm asking for. We're here because you did what you said you were going to do. Therefore, it's now 70 years. You want to go back because that's what you said you were going to do. In Deuteronomy, it says, in all your exiles, if you turn to me and humble yourself, then I'll hear your prayers. And I will have mercy on you. And I will regather you. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, we sort of do this every time we go through the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. One of the things about the blessings and curses is God says, okay, you folks are my people. I made you an offer. You accepted it at Sinai. You're my people. Now, for all concerned, it would really be better if everybody in the world could see that you're my people because I'm blessing the socks off of you. In other words, I've got you in your land. Everything is prospering. Things are going well. And everybody can see my benevolent face shining down upon you. That's what we all want. However, if your behavior is such that people looking upon you don't see my goodness reflected, but instead see your evil, you're still my people. So what they're going to see is the other half of my face, which is when I turn my face away from you and I send you into exile because you are my people and you disobeyed me. In other words, I am not going to let you drag my name through the mud by blessing you despite your sins. I've got a reputation to protect here. That's what God is saying. i got a reputation to protect. And if you guys behave the way I told you to behave, that reputation is going to be for glorious good and blessing. But if you don't, then the other side is going to show up because I'm not dumb. Okay, I'm not a patsy. And if you aren't holding your end of the bargain, everybody is going to see me through your desolation because... I said in advance, that's what's going to happen. So what Daniel is saying here is act for the sake of your name. you got promises to uphold. You told us it was going to be 70 years. It's been 70 years. Time for us to go back. Your word says so. Therefore, act for the sake of your name. And, oh, by the way, have mercy on us. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my whole people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So, he prays, Gabriel gets sent to it. So, 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city, 
to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again, with squares and moat, been in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree is poured out on the desolator. All right. There is the part that everybody goes into a stuttering stall over. As I said at the beginning, this is scripture. We're supposed to study scripture. I do study scripture. And to the best I'm able, I try to understand it. But this is not something that causes me to look around every bush looking for the Antichrist. So, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal the both vision and prophet into another most holy place. So, the first thing is the whole thing is 70 weeks. And then the 70 weeks are broken into three parts. There's a seven-week part, there's a 62-week part, and then there's a one-week part. And there the games begin. And I will take you through a couple of attempts to explain this. I will tell you that people who disagree with these two attempts can point out all the reasons why they're wrong. And I will tell you some of those. I personally, this is Johnnyology, believe that prophecy is intentionally ambiguous so you can't use it for fortune telling. I think it's very deliberate on God's part that all of this stuff is ambiguous so that you don't have people setting dates and having a whole cottage industry in Christianity setting dates for the end times. And I am sort of of the opinion that probably all of them are somewhat wrong in some way. It's necessary for us to know, and if for no other reason, that in hindsight we will see that God knew the end from the beginning. But it's not like you can go to the bank and say, all right, I know tomorrow everything's going to crash, so I want all my money in gold today. It just doesn't work that way. So according to Missler, he lays out four decrees. One in 538, where Cyrus said that the captives will be released and Zerubbabel was given authorization to build the temple. That's in Ezra 1, 1 through 3. So then in 517 B.C., Darius confirms Cyrus's decree, and that's in Ezra 6. And then in 457 B.C., Artaxerxes authorized Ezra to restart temple services, and that's in Ezra 711 through 26 and 99. And then in 445 B.C., Artaxerxes ordered Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, it is Chuck Missler's contention that that fourth decree is the one that is being spoken of by Daniel. We'll just go with that for a minute, and we'll show where that leads. Robert Anderson comes up with this idea of prophetic years. The way he comes up with that is he goes to Revelation, where you have 1,260 days. And if a year is 360 days, that comes out to exactly three and a half years, 
which just makes everything just gooey and nice. So the insight that Anderson came up with is if you go back before 701 BC, which is the long day of Hezekiah, where Hezekiah is laying on his deathbed and God cranks the sundial back, at that point in secular history, everybody's calendar got screwed up. Because before then, they were all 360 days. And these were not stupid people. These were people who really observed the stars and the sun and so forth. They really knew astronomy. So they did not make a mistake of five days. They just all of a sudden, everybody woke up one morning and figured, oh, shazam, we've been wrong all these centuries. So what Anderson's perspective is, years in prophecy are 360 days because that's how God originally created it, and he's consistent. And this jiggering around that we did for Hezekiah has no effect whatsoever on God's clear vision of the procession of time. He set it up that way, and that's the way it's going to be. And in that case, you've got 69 weeks and 7 weeks. So 69 weeks is 483 years. You multiply, you can then convert that into days and you get 173,880 days. And then what you can do is you can pick one of those decrees on the previous slide and start counting and see if you come up somewhere interesting. And if you take the fourth of those and you take 173,880 days, adjust for leap years and all that kind of stuff, Anderson winds up after doing all these calculations, on Monday the 14th of April, 32 AD. So 32 AD on the slide is the line below the red one. And adding all these days up, the 14th day of Nisan is Passover, right? And that would be, according to this, a Monday crucifixion. All right, so that Anderson's calculation. So the next guy is... David Regan, and he says, all of this is poppycock and nonsense. At the time of the prophecy, the year was 365 and a quarter days. And a year means a year means a year. None of this jiggery-pokery screwing around with different length of years. And so he then takes off, and he goes from Artaxerxes' command to Ezra, and same number of years, 483 years. He also breaks it down into 7, 62, and 1. Anderson doesn't do anything with that first seven-day break, remember? Remember the prophecy is broken up into 7, 62, and 1. Anderson doesn't handle the 7. Regan does. And he says that what happens in the 49th year from the decree is it turns out that that's in the 15th year of a guy named Darius Nothus, which means Darius the Bastard. At that point, what happened was construction finished. So construction on Jerusalem finished in that year. So he says, all right, the 49th year from the decree was the end of the construction. He makes use of that first seven. And then he goes from there and he winds up at Wednesday the 25th of April, 31 AD, and that is, so that's the red one, which 
puts a crucifixion on a Wednesday in AD 31, which, as we understand scripture, probably makes a lot of sense. He goes through all the same calculations that Anderson went through, except he starts at a different decree, and he uses full 365-day years. And he arrives in that process at what I consider to be somewhat more reasonable crucifixion day. We then have another day. Both Anderson and Regan and most everybody else say that there is a greater than 2,000-year gap between the first 69 weeks and the 70th week. And the 70th week is going to occur within the book of Revelation. Now, just to make all this fun, the people who argue against Anderson say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No screwing around with the length of the year. The year is 365 days. That would have been what it was when the prophecy was given. That's what Daniel and everybody else would have understood. We don't need to mess with that. But it makes Revelation come out really well because you got 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. And that's cool because it matches some other prophecies. The seven-year period is divided in half. And half of seven is 1,260 days if the years are 360-day years. Because what it says is the people of the prince to come is going to make a covenant for seven years. And at the middle of the seven years, he is going to violate the covenant by putting up an abomination in the temple. And so both in Daniel and in Revelation, the tribulation is divided into two parts, a three and a half year part and a second three and a half year part. And if you're a rapture person, you got now three places where you could be out of here. So the people who like Anderson say 360 day years just make Revelation really work well. We like that. The people who like somebody else, and I'm using Regan as an example, there are others. In fact, one guy says, no, 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 no. The command that we're talking about is not a command by a Persian king, but it's a command by God given to a prophet. And that starts it. And they have a whole other accounting system. That's why I say this is great fun. Now, for those who say that a 365-day year is correct, you get a better Passover, at least if you are in Regan's camp. But they argue against Regan by saying, well, that messes up Revelation. I will suggest maybe it doesn't. Because one of the things that happens in Revelation, for those of you who were here with the last time I taught Revelation, I am speculating. Everybody hear the word? What word did I use? Speculating, okay? If you look at the stuff that happens in Revelation with mountains getting moved and meteors falling from the sky and all that kind of stuff, that could be caused by a massive object passing near the Earth perpendicular to the plane of ecliptic. So you got the plane of the ecliptic and you got this massive object that comes clipping through the solar system and it passes near Earth. What it's doing is dragging a tremendous gravitational well with it. And you could, again, change the length of the year by doing that. And then a year later, as we come around again, the Earth passes through the debris field that is being hauled behind this massive object because it will go for millions of miles, stuff that's been sucked into the gravitational well of this object, and then will fly through meteor storms and all that kind of stuff. So it is not necessarily a defect in Reagan because if that thing passes us and changes the Earth's orbit, we could go back to a 360-day year. It's happened once before. It can happen again. 
NASA has been looking for years for a massive object out beyond the orbit of Pluto. It's something they are actively worried about and they are actively researching. So as I say, the idea of a massive object flying perpendicular through the solar system, passing close to the Earth, with its gravitational pull, could back up what God did for Hezekiah. And then we're back to 360 day years and we're off. You understand, this is just speculation. That's why I say it's an indoor sport, no heavy lifting, and anybody can play. So anyway, it's stuff is all over the internet. You can find half a dozen different machinations of this. If you enjoy this stuff, by all means, enjoy it. It's fun to study it and all that kind of stuff. As I said at the beginning, my personal predilection is I focus more on Torah and figuring out what it is God would have me do while I'm waiting for him. And this other stuff will take care of itself. And when I need to do something, somebody will tell me, you need to do something now. And I will. But until then, I don't spend a lot of bandwidth messing with it. But there are people who enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, by all means enjoy. But don't suddenly come up with the idea that you're a modern incarnation of a prophet and you have got the answer here because that leads people to get grumpy with each other and we don't need that.